James Letter, Faith at Works, Bible Study 9, podcast number 9. Um, here goes. I think I'll probably be interrupted in the middle of this, but um, I'll, I'll start anyway because uh, it's good to get it done, get it finished. Um, this is the last study we're doing in James, as you know. Um, we've covered James the Penman, Trials and Temptations, Hearing and Doing the Word of God, The Sin of Partiality, Justification by Faith or by Works Also. Taming the tongue, what is worldliness, reacting to injustice, and now practicing the presence of God. You see, <clears throat> as James comes to the end of his letter, he's going to speak about the tongue again in a different way. He's going to speak about the tongue in a positive way. Um, how can we use our tongue for the glory of God? Well, two of the ways we can do it are praise and prayer. And another way we can do it is confession, confessing to other people our own weaknesses so we can pray for one another. And and finally, we can use our tongue in a restorative ministry. So he finishes off with the idea of being a restorer, a, 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 the kind of person who's helpful, who, who helps people towards the Lord rather than away from the Lord. And so that's uh, obviously where we're going this today we're we're reading from chapter 5 verse 12 to verse 20 and um, we'll read it together and then we'll think about some of the issues that come up so let's read the scriptures together and ask the lord's blessing on our study james 5 verse 12 to 20 but above all my brethren do not swear neither by heaven or by earth or with any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no no lest you fall into judgment if anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone's cheerful, let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has, any, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Effective. Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We know the Lord will bless his word to us. So you might wonder at the logical leap from um, the persecution section that we have just finished um, just before where we are now, um, where he has been writing and saying uh, things like be patient and suffering and so on. Um, in, in counting those blessed who endure, he speaks about Job, the example of the perseverance of Job under suffering. And then all of a sudden he seems to make this leap onto swearing. You say, what is the connection? Well, I think under the pressure and the circumstances, there was a danger that the the Christians who were being persecuted would be trying to vindicate themselves a lot. They would be in the situation of uh, people coming and accusing them and there was a danger that they would be falling into the Jewish habit of using casual swearing. And what I mean by swearing here is is oath-making. This isn't so much dealing with cursing or swearing the way we use the word. Uh, although the scripture does speak against these things. You look at Ephesians, you look at um, uh, the Lord's teaching as well. 
um, but rather this is the the practice of of dishonesty of of oath making under the guise of being honest. What they would have do done the the Jews they would have um, and we'll see this in Matthew twenty three they would have used certain oaths that weren't just quite as binding as other oaths. So if they swore by God, for instance, well that was binding. But if they swore by heaven that wasn't quite as binding in other words you kind of had a, a sliding scale of dishonesty um, and James is worried about this as Christians you know our, 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 our the real thing we're meant to be is honest so he he brings out this idea of using your tongue in an honest way that's the first point we're going to see verse number 12 the the honest youth use of the tongue so just to break down the 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 rest of the chapter for you um, for your consideration verse verse number 12 is being honest then the next section verse 13 to 18 is being prayerful and then the last section is verse 19 and 20 is being helpful now i'm not completely happy with the helpful one but you can maybe get a better um title for that little section the last few verses where it's all speaking about having the desire to restore your brother who's wandered from the truth to save him from um, the impending danger he's in your brother or sister in Christ I take it in the context so let's look at this together in a little bit more detail first of all oath making and honesty verse 12 but above all my brethren do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no no lest you fall into judgment in the early centuries of christian witness and this is found among the church fathers that they really frowned upon oath making now this isn't so much dealing with oaths in the court of law i don't believe and i've put an appendix on that in the notes and the lord was put under oath and he affirmed he spoke um honestly in that scenario paul calls god to witness in second corinthians one that's again the thought of of an oath in the sense and then of course god himself swears by himself you look at genesis 22 verse 16 and 17 and and, and hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 to 18 for classic passages on on oaths being made by god in a very specific context so i don't think it's ruling out the use of oaths in in that sense oath making in a court of law where you have to put your hand in the Bible and swear and so on. I don't really think that's the problem here. The problem here is honesty. They're not being honest. Um, really, what's happening is that if if some are, are, pray, are, are swearing by heaven and whatever, they're using it to make their words more honest. And yet you shouldn't have to do that as a Christian. We shouldn't really even have to say... I'll be honest. People should know that we are honest. Our words should be our bond. You know, I put a little picture in the front page and, and it says on it, a person's words should be their bond. When they're when not kept, they can no longer inspire confidence or trust in their fellow man. And that's the problem. Here we are as Christians and the early Christians understood this. They says, why should I need to be put under oath? I should have such a testimony that people know when they ask me a straight question, they get a straight answer. They know when they say something to us, 
that they're getting the truth back in return. So that's really the first verse, verse number 12. It's all about letting your yes be yes and your no, no. So if I'm notoriously unreliable in my words, if I tell someone I'll be somewhere at such and such a time and I'm not, um, after a while that becomes an issue. In fact, it is an issue, isn't it? I've, I've personally been trying to sort out my timekeeping for that very reason. Now, you might have a particular reason for that uh, and so when I realise that and, and it's not always the case where someone's actively being dishonest but it can become a situation of dishonesty if you know fine rightly you're not going to reach there at that time okay so we'll link verse number 12 uh, for now um, I'll be back in a few minutes after I've uh, done what I have to do and we'll continue this podcast see you in a few seconds time So verse 12, to come back to it, verse 12 really brings before us um, one use of the tongue which is really important, which is the honest use of the tongue. Now we move on, verse 13 to 18, as I say, to being prayerful. And in this section, we're dealing with another use of the tongue. The, in a sense, we might say the highest use of the tongue, speaking to God in praise and prayer and worship, those kind of things. And also... Um, learning to be able to speak to others in a confessing way confessing your faults one to another and so on your trespasses verse 16 so you can see how as he draws this letter to a close he's really emphasizing this thought of the tongue being used in such a sacred manner that's a good question isn't it to ask ourselves at the start of a section like this how do i use my tongue um do I use it in prayer? Um, am I truly marked by a thankful spirit which um, comes over to people in a way that is, 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 is not complaining or harsh or, 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 or critical, those kind of things? We, we need to ask ourselves questions like that when we come to a section. If anyone among you is suffering or suffers, or is having a hard time suffers hardship let him pray is anyone cheerful let him sing psalms is any among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anointing him with the oil in the name of the lord now let's think about these uh, sections first of all personal prayer and praise two positive ways to use the tongue this idea of undergoing hardship is actually also used by Paul to Timothy. He speaks about himself and he says that he undergoes hardship. And he speaks to Timothy and he says, um, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Face the bad days, difficult days, the troublesome times. Um, and do it, as it says in this passage, in a prayerful way. When circumstances come, remember that we can get through those circumstances if our hearts are marked by this prayerful attitude and we're speaking to the Lord about these issues. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, the word for psalms here isn't the word that's necessarily psalms. It's the word for for actually the company of musical instruments and so on. It's a more general word which means sacred music. Um, sacred songs, if you like, hymns, whatever, uh, are all included in this thought of of psalms in this passage. So here we have, uh, if you're cheerful, 
sing psalms. You remember in Acts 16, we have a combination of these things. They were suffering hardship in the jail. They were praying, Paul and Silas. Uh, and yet they were also singing to the Lord. And so praise and prayer should mark us as believers. Um, in the next uh, section, we deal with not so much personal prayer, but elders prayer. And it seems to be drawing out a very specific situation. You initially start to read it and say, is, is it advocating for a, a whole scale faith healing idea? And, and that I think we'll find is very clearly what it's not doing. Now, really what we have here is the issue of sin and sickness brought together. Sin and sickness. Now, this is a problem for some people um, for various reasons. Um, the first thing we have to say when we come to a passage like this is that sin does result in sickness. Um, I'm going to qualify that. The first sin led to sickness and death coming into the world. So there's a sense in which, very definitely, because of sin um, and our fallen nature and our fallen condition before God, that has resulted in all sorts of sin and sickness um, and problems and death and decay and so on. In, so that's the first thing to mention. But not all sickness is the result of sin. We come to John chapter 9. You remember that little section where the the, the man was born blind and, and the disciples speak to the Lord and say, Lord, is it his fault that he's born blind? Has he sinned or, or, or was it his parents that sinned? They, they took it for granted that there must have been some sin in the past that was the result of him being like that. And the Lord say, neither him nor his parents were born blind or were, were, were sinful. And, and as, a, as, as a result, we have the... A, a teaching that 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 the Lord is bringing out that for the glory of God this circumstance has come about and the Lord had overruled that circumstance uh, for His glory and and so we cannot just look upon someone who is sick and say they must have sinned. This is evidently a very private individual, uh, uh, individual matter where they the man himself calls for the elders of the church because he is recognizing the disciplining hand of God in his sickness or he thinks that is so and because of that he calls for the elders of the church notice he is the one who initiates this and he's going to go on and speak about confessing your trespasses in the next little section so this is the the, the scenario of of this man recognizing I am I am sick and my sickness is a result of some I feel some sin or some way in which the Lord is disciplining me and I'm starting to understand what it is and it involves maybe other people or it should involve the elders of the church and so he calls for them the overseers to come and to pray over him and anoint him, as we'll think in a minute, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has any committed any sins, it will be forgiven him and so on. So so here we have the scenario of of someone who is sick, but sick as a result of some, it seems likely anyway, some sin or some reason for their being disciplined in his life. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think it's verse 30. You remember... Speaking about the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, he says, Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In other words, there are some people who have prematurely been taken away in death 
Why is that so? Many are weak and sickly among you, many sleep. For if you judged yourselves, you would not be judged. And we are judged, you're chastened of the Lord, that you might not be condemned with the world. So when the Lord takes dealings with a believer who's not acting rightly, he's sinning in some way, he can bring physical sickness into their life. Now, we've mentioned sin bringing sickness. We have mentioned just normal circumstances and for the glory of God bringing sickness in the case of John chapter 9. Uh, we must also mention for the sake of completion that Satan can buffet people physically. That's First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 12. A messenger from Satan. It seems to be a physical thing that Paul is suffering from. And we know very particularly in Job's case, he was afflicted not only in the circumstances of his family, but also in the uh, the the circumstance of his, his flesh and the boils and sores and so on. And, and so that was evidently a direct attack of Satan. Now, one caveat I put in here. It was only allowed by God for the ultimate blessing of Job. And so God has the right of veto in any work of Satan in this area. So we must not think and look to Satan in some sort of terror or anything like that. If something comes upon us, we must remember that God has sovereignly allowed it for our potential good. Okay, enough said. Let's come back to the passage. Now there is a false teaching out there and, and we're going to look at this oil anointing. Uh, there's a false teaching, particularly among the Catholics, and that false teaching is that um, what they call the sacrament of the extreme unction or of extreme unction. It's part of the last rites, even um, among the Catholics. And if someone is very sick, near to death, um, they give this um, sacrament of the extreme unction where they, they would come along and they would... They would pour oil and kind of sign of a cross or whatever over someone and they would often give them um, the mass as well at the same time and 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 those kind of things. And, and it's kind of a whole big um, sacrament. It's a, it's a sacramental thing. In other words, they think there's some empowerment in the actual doing of it. Now notice exactly what is said here. First of all, it doesn't say the priest. It says the elders of the church. Now, in the Dewey translation, um, Roman Catholic translation of, of the New Testament, they have translated it, let him bring the priests of the church. Now, that is a bad translation. Even the Catholics have had to admit that. And in their newer versions, they've had to change it from the word priests because it's not speaking about the priest but then look at the teachings of the catholic church on this point who can give the extreme unction and i'm quoting them only a catholic priest so they are denying what the scripture is saying here when it speaks about the elders of the church who can receive it any catholic in danger from death from sickness um and so on um does the extreme unction take away sin 
Extreme unction takes away all your venial sins, even your mortal sins, if you're unable to confess them but are truly sorry. You can see the, the whole palaver of the sacramental system of Catholicism coming in here. And they have taken this verse and taken it, taken it and twisted it out of context and not understood it. Now, first of all, they misread the passage and that's dangerous. And secondly, they don't read it carefully enough because it says something else. It says, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. It does not say that the anointing of oil will heal the sick. Okay? So we've got to look at what it says. It's the prayer of faith. It's the effective prayer of of, of confiding trust that heals and saves the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, it will be forgiven him. Now let's look think of it um, now more closely. So it's not sacramental. Now that leaves two other options. Either we can look upon this as, as therapeutic or we can look upon it as symbolic. Now this is where there are two very good schools of thought and I'll mention them both and I'll mention what I think maybe um, towards the end. But I'm not completely convinced of one or the other so I'll leave them for your deeper thought so let's look, look at this for a moment. It says in the passage, clearly, um, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So that we have the elders praying over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, I, I think there's one other reference, and I don't have the reference here. I think um, Mark chapter 6 is it, Mark 6 and 13. Where this very, very these very words are used of the apostles going out and during their miraculous work, they anointed people who were sick with oil, and they got better. Now you look at it yourself. In fact, I'll look it up for the sake of making sure I'm being accurate here. Mark, chapter six and verse thirteen, I think. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil. Many who were sick and healed them. Now there we have it. Anointed with oil. Many who were sick and healed them. Now. This is the context where this anointing with oil is is exactly the same. Or very, very, very similar. Which suggests to me that there might be a symbolic thing in this. Uh, I do wonder... Whether that's the case, it seems to me that perhaps what is happening here is that there's a, there's something of an acting out. Um, uh, oil might be interpreted as an aid to faith, an action of obedience to awaken faith, similar to the Lord's use of saliva in his healing ministry. You go to Mark 7 and Mark 8 for that. Or, or Naaman dipping in the Jordan. Now, there's nothing inherent about the Jordan, the waters of Jordan. There's nothing inherent about the saliva of the Lord. That's not the point. The point is, here we have oil, this this refreshing oil that speaks of the work of the Spirit or whatever, and, and perhaps it's just being symbolized to the people. This anointing of oil is being symbolized that God is, is at work through the prayers of his people. It could be that. That's the symbolic side. What about therapeutic? Oil is used in a therapeutic, a refreshing way throughout Scripture, pouring in oil and wine. You remember that um, of the the Good Samaritan. 
And so there is a possibility. What he is actually saying here is that you pray and you give whatever medicine is necessary. And, and the Lord is the one who, through prayer, will raise and heal the sick. Now, I'll leave the two options for you. You go and look into them. The word for anointing here is the one that's not necessarily used very often of of sacred anointing. Um, and some people even translate it, have the thought of rubbing with oil. Perhaps there is that in it, but I'll leave it for your consideration. At the end of the day, what we know for, for absolute sure is that there is no potency in the oil itself. This is not a sacrament in that sense. But there perhaps is a symbolic significance in it. Um, you can think of that. Moving on, verse number 16. Verse number 16. Um, confess your trespasses one to another. And pray for one another that you might be healed or you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he goes on to speak about Elijah. What have we here? We have this thought of mutual prayer and confession. Now, we do know that when it comes to the confession of sins, you don't confess to a priest like the Catholic system has it. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. We come to the Lord. We come to the Father and as Christians. We come and confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John chapter 1 and verse number Nine, uh, and so the that is absolutely clear in scripture, but there is a thought here that perhaps when there's been fault and there's been sin and there's been trespass, I have to be ready to go to the brother perhaps that I've sinned against, those who are affected by my sin, and own up to acknowledge that I am in the wrong. I need to be willing to say I was wrong. I confess my faults. Now, that's not always an easy thing to do. And it takes humility and it takes grace. But just remember that we have been forgiven so much. So we must learn to be forgiving to others. And we must always learn also that to remember that we have the potential of sin within us. And so we must be have the grace to go to someone when we've done wrong and admit it. We must also have the grace to be forgiving to those who have, uh, have faltered and sinned. Confess your uh, sins, your faults, your um, your trespasses one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So this is mutual prayer as a result of it for the betterment. You're looking after each other. You're helping each other and so on. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So now he moves on to um, Elijah. This is the effective prayer, the example of Elijah. It actually says here that he prayed earnestly or in prayer he prayed or in praying he prayed. This is, this is Elijah in deep, earnest, ground-breaking, earth-shattering prayer the prayer of a righteous person has great power as to its working it tells us and so here we have it he was like us he had the same nature as us he was of like passions the authorized says as we are and you look at 
Elijah's life, some parts of it just seem to be almost superhuman and then other parts of it you're like, he's just like me. You think of the failure in front of Jezebel, his running away to hide uh, in, the, in the cave and so on. And yet you think of the superhuman side of his life and I'm, I'm, I'm using that loosely. The times when he stood before the prophets of Baal and, and, and all these kind of things. And you say, well, what a man. But he was a man who wasn't just a front. He wasn't the Samson that we were thinking about, who sadly his life wasn't in line with with his power. This was a man who was in prayer before God and, and changed the course of a nation in a way Samson never did. And so here we have Elijah in prayer, earnest prayer, that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. So three and a half years, it didn't rain. And it was because of the prayers of the man of God, Elijah. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Isn't that tremendous just to think of the power of prayer? So how should we use our words? How should we speak? We should be in earnest prayer. This is a great challenge to me. I think back in times when I was just saved and, and it seems so natural and so easy to pray and yet sometimes we build up so many barriers to prayer. So we come to the end here. I've entitled this last these last two verses not only being honest and being prayerful but being helpful. Look at them again. Brothers, if any one of you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now this seems to be looking back in the context that's just been brought to us. This thought of confession and, 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 and being brought together in prayer in order that there's been blessing for others. And he's just speaking more generally now. And he says, listen, you have that attitude of wanting to be helpful to your brother. Of wanting to be restorative in your ministry. Of looking on your brother and saying, how could I help him to be what he is not now? How could I bring him towards the Lord, not away from the Lord? You notice he's speaking to brothers. If anyone among you wander from the truth, and someone turn him back. Now, you might say, well, is he really speaking about brothers? Because he speaks about turning a sinner from the error of his ways. I think he is speaking about believers. There's a very... We sometimes use that idea of saving the soul from death as the thought of the ultimate salvation. While that is true, if there's one among them who's not really truly a believer and wonders from the truth in that sense, you know, all the more if you turn him back, convert him, then you will be saving a sinner from the error of his ways and saving a soul from eternal death and covering a multitude of sins. So all those things are true if it's a non-believer, an unbeliever. But... It is also true for a Christian, and this is where it comes, it comes home to us all. We probably all know people that aren't walking the way they should walk. Who have gone away from the Lord, and I mean gone into sin. Um, there's a real danger that they'll come under God's disciplining hand, which might lead to their temporary, uh, their, their, their shortening of their days. How very solemn that is. It says here, he will save a soul from death. We've thought about it already. Uh, this man who was raised up. And so, 
we've got to think about this when we think of maybe ones that we know and names that we can mention. We're not mentioning any people that have gone away and got involved in, in the world or got involved in sin and, and aren't walking right before the Lord. If they're truly the Lord's, there's a real danger that they you know, will come under the Lord's disciplining hand. And they could actually come to a, tempor- a, a shortening of their days. But that's not what God wants for anyone. So we should be earnestly in prayer for those around us that have gone away from the Lord. In order that they will be, their soul will be saved from death and, and there will be a covering of a multitude of sins. You remember it says in another passage, love covers a multitude of sins. And God wants to, as it were, deal with these issues so that, that a cloak can be cast over all the sins. And that righteousness might rule and reign and, and, and be reinvigorated in the lives of those around us. May the Lord help us as we come to the end of this very practical epistle. Which has taken us through the use of the tongue. The danger of partiality. The nature of faith. The importance of not living in a worldly way. Reacting to injustice and so on. And now practicing the presence of God. <coughs> May the Lord help us as his people to put into practice what James lived. And may we be more like our Lord Jesus. You know, I was just thinking of this whole idea of how we use our tongue. And there was um, a little hymn that came to mind uh, with me. And it was found and it is found in, in William Cowper's poetry. And it says this. What various hindrances we meet when coming to the mercy seat. Yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there. Prayer makes the darkened cloud withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder Jacob saw. Gives exercise to faith and love. Brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armour bright and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees while Moses stood with arms spread wide. Success was found on Israel's side but when through weariness they failed that moment Amalek prevailed. Have we no words? Ah, think again. Words flow a a pace when we complain and fill our fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all our care. We're half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, our cheerful song would oftener be, see what the Lord has done for me. Stuart brought it to our attention another lovely poem by Isaac Hewan, and I'll leave that with you as well. It's speaking about our attitude to the fallen, stumbled saint. Remember Galatians 6 and passages the like that were mentioned in the study. Lost property. Judge not the saint when taken off his guard. Your estimate of him will be too hard. Stumble he may and fall and low may lie with ideals soaring to the very sky. Be careful then of all times lest you thrust recovery's tender bud into the dust. Hope's final thread unthinking round apart and break to pieces the slowly mending heart. With kindly touch the need for succour meet and help the struggling wanderer to his feet. Whisper a word of comfort in his ear. 
and pray for him in private and in fear. And so shall you be great, and God will know the magnanimity of soul you show. For him to his, so manly coldly can, survey the blunder and forget the man. May the Lord help us to have this recovering attitude of heart, this desire to see others helped and blessed in their Christian life as brothers and sisters should. Thank you.